So there is a small change in what we will be reading today. So we will be uh, reading in Romans 3, 9 through 20. So uh, we'll be stopping after verse 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. These are the words of God. They are all true, and they are given to us in love.
Hey guys, um, it's my privilege to introduce to you uh, Jack Royalston, uh, who's with us today to um, share God's word with us. Uh, I met Jack, he, him and his family um, lived during their time at RTS Charlotte, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, um, living on Jordan's, my wife Jordan's parents' uh, land um, in, in one house there. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we're, and, and they're here today as well. So uh, glad to have you guys and your family. And Jack is currently the head of admissions at RTS. And um, yeah, we're just excited to have you, brother, and um, for you to, to share God's word with us. Um, so let me, let me pray for you uh, before you go. Um, Father, uh, we lift up um, Jack to you, and um, we, we want, uh, Lord, as same as every Sunday, to hear um, your voice uh, spoken to us uh, through what happens um, here behind the pulpit. And I pray that you would use Jack mightily to do that um, as we, he, he comes with a conclusion of a hard, a hard uh, uh, set of passages for us, but one that is part of your good news to our hearts, uh, that, uh, Lord, that we um, are not bringing anything to you. And, and, and I pray that um, we would hear that and be able to take that home today. And thank you for um, raising him up to do that uh, for us today. And I'll be with them and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, man. Thanks, Harrison. And thanks to all of you. I add my welcome and my greeting in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Spirit of Christ. And it's good to be gathered around his word this morning. Excited to dive into this passage. Um, yeah, a quick word of background uh, that Harrison was mentioning. I'm joined by my wife, Andrea. She's here with me this morning, as well as our son, Abram, uh, who I think is now in nursery, I believe, with the uh, other 200 children in this church. So, uh, so he'll be enjoying that. Um, so thanks again for having us. We're really happy to be here. Before we, uh, before we moved to Locust, uh, where um, the Harwoods lived, we were uh, missionaries for several years in, um, apologies, small years, uh, 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 in, uh, in Kenya, in East Africa. And so uh, we moved from Kenya to, from a major international city of six million people to a small farming community of, I don't know, four or 5,000 people. Um, so it's been a sweet gift for us to, to be friends with them and to be a part of their church family. Uh, as Harrison said, we are approaching uh, an exceedingly serious text this morning. When uh, Harrison first reached out to me a few months ago about preaching this morning, I, uh, we didn't actually nail down a passage until probably about a month ago or so. And when he texted me, Romans 3, 9 to 20, I thought he was joking at first. Because I thought, I don't know y'all, you don't know me, and now all we're talking about this morning is sin. So, welcome. So, welcome. Um, but all jokes aside, um, here's, why, here's why this text is exceedingly important. And a special thanks to Maria for a wonderful reading of the passage um, this is the final, final section of a large portion of the book of Romans. So next Sunday, arguably, Romans 3.21 is, it's actually printed in your bulletin, is arguably the beginning of one of, if not the most glorious text in all of the Bible. You can make a good argument that Romans 3.21 to the end of the chapter is one of the most important things that human beings have ever written on a piece of paper. There's nothing quite like the words that come in Romans 3.21. So, our text immediately leads us into a wonderful passage of, of Scripture 
So the better that we understand today's text, the better we will understand next week's text and following passages. Uh, but I want to challenge you with something before we dive into this. We all, many of us have been in church for a long time. Many of you have probably been a part of this church for a long time. I want you to try to listen to the, these words this morning as if you didn't know what came after it. Many of you know the rest of the story of the gospel. But when whoever was reading the letter of Romans to the church at Rome 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote it, they, I have a feeling they probably paused when they finished reading Romans 3, verse 20. I have a feeling they probably paused, and I want us to do the same thing. I think every single person in that church would have been breathless when they had read Romans 3, 20. For by works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. That moment, that hesitation, that moment of what happens now is a real moment. Can I illustrate it just to capture kind of what I'm trying to get at and how I think we should, the posture we should have coming into this morning. October 13th, 1972, Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571 crashed in the remotest parts of the Andes Mountains. There were 45 individuals on board at the time, several of whom died upon impact, and several died in, this, in the coming days afterwards of starvation, of freezing, of hypothermia. And search and rescue from the Chilean government actually flew over that site several times over the course of the next week. But because of the color of the plane, it blended right in perfectly with the vast just fields of snow on top of the mountain. Can you imagine watching those planes fly over your head if you were one of those survivors? Seeing your opportunity for salvation, your opportunity for life flying right overhead, and there it goes to be seen only a few days later. After eight days, they never came back. That feeling you have in your stomach right now, that's what I want you to have during this sermon. I think that's how the original readers of the book of Romans would have heard Romans 3, verse 20. So with those, with those words in place, let me pray for us as we dive into this passage. Father, indeed, we come to your word this morning looking into a mirror. A mirror that if we're honest and real, we look at it and it's very ugly. You show us our sin, you show us our shame, you show us the depths of our human hearts. What can we do apart from you? If we cannot save ourselves, who will? That's the question we wrestle with this morning. That's the question we come to you with this morning, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you've blessed us with your word and we ask that your spirit now would be working powerfully, mightily, and savingly in our hearts this morning. Help us to be honest. Help us to be real. Help us to face the truth of our sin and to rest in the truth of a wonderful Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this is our sermon in a sentence. It's probably not a huge surprise, and it probably won't take many of you off guard. There is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves from our sins. 
There's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves from our sins. In fact, the only proper response is repentance, and the only hope is a Savior. So as we're looking through this, I want you to see the, dev- the devastating effects of sin on not only who we are, but on our relationships as well. So first, we're going to see the devastating reach of sin in that it, it applies and impacts all people. So as you guys have been studying the book of Romans the past several weeks, you've seen that Paul is marching towards a particular goal in these first three chapters. Paul, he has already laid out the goal. The goal is the righteousness of God. But as soon as Romans 1.17, as soon as he introduces the goal, he immediately brings up the problem in Romans 1.18. As much as the righteousness of God has been revealed, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul is showing that Gentiles are sinners because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They're the ones who know that God is real. They know he is there, but they just don't care. They choose not to follow him. In chapter 2, though, Paul shows that the Jews are unrighteous because they look down on the Gentiles. You can think of Romans 2, verses 1 and 2. The Jews, although they had received wonderful gifts from God, this was covered last week in the sermon, they received wonderful gifts from God, covenants, the oracles, to use Paul's language, the patriarchs, the sacrificial system, all these wonderful gifts they received, it didn't push them to repentance. Instead, it pushed them to pride. They were the very hypocrites that looked down on others when they were doing the very things they preached against. They assume that because God chose them, they're in the clear. They won't be punished. Moses speaks directly against this in part of Deuteronomy. Think of Deuteronomy chapter 7 or so. He says, it's not because you were great. It was not because you were more than all the other nations. It was because I chose to set my love on you. That's why you're entering this land. So now we come to this morning. This section, Harrison mentioned this a moment ago, is Paul's summary of everything he said so far in Romans 1, 2, and 3 about human rebellion against God. Jews and Gentiles, at the end of the day, when all the dust is settled, there's no difference. There's no difference between them. They're all slaves to sin. Did you notice the language that Paul uses in verse 9? For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Bondage language. We are all under sin. The Jews refuse to accept the gracious invitation that God gives them, and instead we choose to bow the knee to our own desires, our own pleasures, our own reputations, indeed our very own selves. The Jews were the people chosen by God, but like I said a moment ago, it was not, they didn't actually live out of the gratitude they should be expressing to God because of the gifts. Instead, They looked down on the Gentiles and on others who didn't live quite as well as they did, at least on the outside. Instead of joyful obedience, instead they became proud. When I was in uh, college, I had the opportunity to meet with an influential PCA pastor who uh, had come to our college campus and was meeting with a few students. And so we had this kind of small dinner with him, and it was really exciting. And he was a wonderful pastor and very thoughtful and intelligent. 
So we're meeting with him, and one of the students who was with me asked him, what do you think is the most pressing, urgent, terrible uh, threat that the American church is facing today? What's the most threatening thing to the health and the vitality of the American church? And we were all like leaning in, you know, we were all so thrilled to hear what he had to say. We thought it was going to be something mind-boggling. And he pauses, and he thinks, and he says, entitlement. Entitlement is the most urgent and pressing threat to the life of the American church. I think that's exactly what Paul is telling his Jewish audience right now. You think that you've been given all these things because you're good. You've been given all these things because of God's wonderful grace, because of his kindness to you to lovingly condescend in relationship. The Jews were different on the outside, but inside they were no different than anyone else. In other words, sin, sin levels the playing field. Sin puts us all on the same exact playing field. None of us, apart from Christ, are any better than anyone else. We're all the same. Unless these Jews, these people, place their trust in God, they would never be saved because apart from his intervening grace, they had absolutely no hope for salvation. We're often tempted, I think, to think that when we talk about sin or when we confront people about their sin, we often think and we're told that that's a sign of our lack of compassion. In fact, the Bible says the very opposite. In fact, if we approach one another and we talk about our sin, we're really just being brutally honest with one another, are we not? We're being honest with each other. We're facing ourselves for who we really are, and we're looking at one another as others truly are. We're saying, hey, we're all on the same playing field. We're, we all have the same problem. We all are desperately in need of the exact same solution. You've probably heard this phrase before, there but for the grace of God go I. That's well said. There but for the grace of God go I. If it was, not, it was only because of God's grace that I am not walking in complete and utter rebellion against Christ and his kingdom. Entitlement was a Jewish problem, and entitlement is often our problem too. That we think that because we come to church, because we do certain things, we don't say certain things, we live a certain way, but that's enough to make us righteous with God. We'll come back to this just in a few minutes. Following Jesus, though, let me put it this way, is not something we're entitled to. Jesus is our master by choice, and we are his servants by grace. He has condescended to us. We don't get to demand our rights with Jesus. He graciously invites us in and makes us his own. So sin is devastating in its reach in that it, it applies to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, but it also, we also get to see in this passage its devastating results. There is no person on earth who is not touched and stained and tainted by sin in every single faculty of who they are as a human. Theologians often call this total depravity. Maybe the better way would be putting it would be something like radical depravity. Radical in the sense that in the deepest roots of who we are as humans, you and I are sinful. It's not that we're as evil as we possibly can be. That's not what total depravity is saying. Total depravity is saying 
in every way that it means to be human, sin has entered and infiltrated that part of who you are. That's what total depravity means. The results are, are utterly utterly mind-boggling when you look at how Paul lays out this part of his argument. And beginning in verse 10, Paul begins going through this litany of Old Testament texts. Probably, if you, have a, if you have like an English Bible, you probably have little footnotes there at the bottom that will tell you all the passages that he's pulling from. He's quoting directly from the Old Testament at numerous points. First, in the first few verses, he describes our sinful nature. Then he moves on to describe our sinful speech. And then finally, he describes our sinful behavior, our sinful actions. So I'm going to walk through starting in verse 10, some of these images from the Old Testament that Paul uses to describe you and me. The uncomfortable reality with this next section is that Paul is not describing sin in some nebulous way. Paul is describing you and me as people. He's talking about us. Let's begin. He begins, we are unrighteous. Verse 10. We do not do what we were made to do. Verse 11, we are ignorant. We do not understand God or his ways. Frankly, we choose not to understand God or his ways. In verse 11, we're selfish. We seek our own way instead of going God's way. Verse 12, we are, look at that language, we are worthless. We have forfeited our status as God's chosen people. In fact, we make a wreck of our lives. This word I found uh, was used once in the, in the Greek Old Testament, and it's used to describe soldiers who go in and ruin and destroy, completely devastate a city. That's the word Paul is using right here. We make a wreck of our lives and the lives of others. Again, beginning in verse 13, Paul actually switches his picture now to focus on our speech, the way we use our words. He says our words make us dead. They are words that bring words of death instead of life. They're not seasoned with salt, as Paul says elsewhere. They're nuclear missiles that we launch often gladly at one another. Verse 13, we're liars. We hate the truth. We would prefer to lie rather than pursue the truth. In verse 13, Our words are poisonous. They slowly sink into our enemies and suck out all of their life. Verse 14, we're hateful. We burn bridges and we hold grudges. Listen to how James describes our speech in James chapter 3. He says, How great a fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. It stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. No human being can tame it. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. If you allow me, I'll continue. Verse 15, he changes his image one more time from sinful nature to sinful speech to sinful actions. So now he goes on in verse 15, we are murderers. We go our own way to inflict pain on others. We may not always do it with our actions, but we might do it with our words, even our thoughts, even our attitudes, even those cold shoulders we often give to those that we keep at arm's length. We are, verse 16, we are self-destructive. 
We burn bridges. We destroy ourselves from the inside out. Again, verse 16, we are fighters. We hate peace with others, with ourselves, and with God. We would rather wage war than rest in peace with our neighbors. Finally, we are God haters. This is the summary in verse 18. If you prefer modern parlance, apart from Christ, you and I are atheists. Atheism is not principally about not believing in God. Atheism is about receiving the knowledge of God and rejecting it and pointing a finger in the face of God and saying, I hate you. It's the greatest kind of proud foolishness. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes all these things. I am inclined by nature to hate God and to hate my neighbor. I don't think it could possibly be said more succinctly than that. If inside, right now, you are begging me to stop now, that's a really good sign. That's a really good sign of God's grace. The hardest part about being honest with our sin is that we have to take a good long look. We have to take a good long look at our sin, and we have to be honest. Honesty is key. We have to be honest. Because so long as we're honest, we can actually face these things, and we can actually look to real hope. If we're not honest... It's going to spiral down into all kinds of ways we try to make up for it. The image from these, from these texts is that you and I are sitting in a trial and the judge is reading off the charges against us. Here's what makes the analogy fall short. The judge sitting on the throne is not only the perfectly righteous and holy creator of all things, he is also the very one against whom our charges have been committed. All the crimes, all the sin you and I have committed is ultimately directed at one single audience. Of course, it has damaging effects in its wake in all sorts of ways with our neighbors and those whom we love. But principally, sin is committed first and foremost against the eternal judge, and that judge is sitting on the throne right now. We should, be, we should respond by crying out for mercy in the list of an overwhelming amount of charges, but instead we build up our righteousness. Instead of hearing these things and thinking, I need mercy, instead we say, let me try a little harder. So we've seen sin has devastating effects in its reach and its results. Now I want us to focus for a few minutes on our response to such charges. If every person is a slave to sin, then we think we must find a way to make ourselves righteous. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. Some of you are listening to this, and some of you might err on the side of pretending, your gut instinct is pretending that this isn't true, that Paul or myself is overstating the problem that you're not as bad as the Bible says you are. These are the refrains, these are the refrains of the pretenders. Things like, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as those people. Think of the Pharisee and the tax collector who stands before God, the Pharisee, praying in the temple and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those other people, especially like this man right here, this tax collector. 
Or maybe even a more common refrain from pretenders is, I would never do something quite like that. We convince ourselves that so long as we have it all together on the outside, we can piece things together on the inside just enough to get us across the finish line. Let me, let me illustrate this from another part of the Bible. You all are familiar with Peter. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter and the other disciples were having dinner with Jesus privately. He was close to Jesus. He's having dinner with his disciples. They're enjoying the Passover meal. In fact, they even sing a hymn. And then Jesus suddenly completely changes the whole tenor of the conversation. And Jesus tells his disciples these words. He gives them a warning. Each and every one of you will abandon me. He even backs it up with an Old Testament quotation, just like Paul does right here. It's as if Jesus is saying, I will prove it so clearly that all of you will betray me by quoting from God's word itself. However, Peter refuses to take no for an answer. Listen to what he says. Even though they all fall away, Lord, I will not. Sure, Jesus, all of your other disciples, these other 11 guys, I'm not sure how they are spiritually, but there's no chance I will fall away. They aren't cut from the same cloth as me. They don't have what it takes to go it with you to truly follow you. But Peter believes he does. Peter has absolutely no clue the spiritual war that is fixing to absolutely bear down on him like he had never known before. That very night, if you know the rest of the story, proved to be the very worst night of Peter's life. Peter had no clue what was coming around the corner. Jesus even warned him. He said, tonight, truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And all the disciples say, we will not. Even if I must die with you, I will not forsake you. When we compare ourselves with others, we often just miss the point entirely. Sin, again, puts us on the same playing field. You and I have the same problem and we have the same solution offered to us in Christ. When we were living in Kenya for a few years, our team had a motto uh, when it came to ministry, comparison kills community. I think that's well said. Comparison kills community. Comparison will prevent you from being able to love others on where they're actually coming from. We'll be able to love them as they really are, not as who you think they should be. Can I give a warning about this text kind of at this point? I thought about including this at the beginning, but I'll include it now. There's a temptation and an urge when hearing this passage, I think, to think about somebody else. I think there's a temptation to sit here and think, I am so glad that this person is in this room hearing these things right now. It might be someone who hurt you 10 years ago, or it could be someone who hurt you 10 minutes ago. It doesn't really make a difference. It could be someone who's not in this room, or it could be the very person sitting right beside you. I will say this with the utmost humility and honesty. This text is about you. This text is about you. We must be honest and resist the urge to think about someone else. This text is about you and it's about me. Whether you've been walking with Christ all of your life or if this is your first time ever coming into the doors of a church, this 
text is for you and Christ is speaking to you this morning. So we have some that will hear this and they'll pretend. I'm not as bad as, as I, you say that I am. Some of you others, though, will hear this passage and your first reaction will be to prove, prove it wrong by doing right. You think that if you can just do enough, you'll be good. A lucrative job or a nice family, an impressive education, a respectable reputation, a sharp intellect, whatever it is. You place your trust in those things, thinking, as long as I can be right, then I will be accepted. It will be enough in the end. The problem with performance, if, if pretending makes your, makes your sinfulness less than it really is, performing is taking God's holiness and dragging it down. That God's holiness is something that you actually can achieve. It will always leave you feeling discouraged and exhausted. Always. It's the, it, it offers, it promises you all of the benefits with none of the privileges. It will never come through for you in the end. Here's the problem. If your plan is to get right with God by being good, by doing the right things, by externally abiding by the law or by social, social things that we think make us good, then you must play by God's rules. And the way God has told us in the Bible is that it's either all of the law or none of the law. To be clear, it's not that every single one of you in verses 10 through 18 do these things every single moment, right? Do you understand? That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying that all of these are a part of who we are as humans because we're sinful. And it points to the fact that we fall short in ways of the law that we don't even know we are. We don't even know we're falling short, but yet we are. Um, some of you might be familiar with uh, a theologian in the 3rd and 4th, uh, 4th and 5th century named uh, St. Augustine. Augustine has this well-known book called The Confessions, which is sort of like his, uh, his spiritual autobiography. And early on, uh, uh, St. Augustine actually lived a very wild life before he became a Christian. And, uh, but very interestingly, uh, early on in the book when he's recounting parts of his childhood, he recalls one particular story of he and his friends got together and they went for a walk at night and they found a pear tree, and they begin ransacking this pear tree. They just rip the pears off on someone's property, and what they do with it is they just chuck them. They just chuck the pears. They, they don't do anything with them. They don't eat them. They don't enjoy them. Probably many of you are thinking, that's just children being children, right? Augustine is completely and utterly dismayed about the whole situation years later. He uses it as an illustration of his desire to do evil for absolutely no purpose, right? There was, there was nothing, there was no end to what he and his friends were doing in stripping the pear tree and chucking the fruit around. There was no point of it. He uses it as a picture to say, that is how wicked you and I are. We do evil things just because we want to. That, friends, if you walk out with that takeaway, then this has done its job to have a mirror held up to us to say, it's not that you're the worst person in the world, but it's that you have fallen short and you've sinned against the greatest being that could possibly exist, the very creator himself. 
God demands that we keep all the law, not just some of it, not just part of it, not just half of it, all of it. If we're going to be justified by works of the law, we have to play by the rules of the one who made that law. Your works must be perfect. Some of you uh, might have heard of G.K. Chesterton, was a, uh, was a British author and essayist and apologist. And, uh, but uh, there's a well-known story that, that almost feels apocryphal, but he, uh, so the, the story goes that uh, a London magazine called The Times had issued uh, an essay, an essay kind of pulling from different well-known authors. Uh, and their question was, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And so the magazine receives G.K. Chesterton's reply back, and it's become well-known now. This is what he wrote back. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That captures quite well the truth of what this passage is teaching us. There are lots of problems out in the world. Don't get me wrong. There are lots of problems. And, and to, be, to be clear, we wage war against sin, death, and the devil in the name of Christ. We have a real enemy out there. I'm not denying that. The focus of this passage is that you and I have an enemy within us. It's our fallen human nature. It's our disposition, the natural curve we have back to ourselves to make ourselves right with God. So why, after all of this, why does Paul take us to the woodshed in this text? Why does he spend three, nearly three whole chapters in Romans getting us to this point? He wants us to get the point. He wants us to get this right. Look at verse 19 with me. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and every person held accountable to God. There's, there's no way to get away with sin in God's universe, in God's economy. There is real, actual punishment, real, actual accountability for the choices that you and I make. There are consequences for the sins that you and I commit, just like there was when the very first sin was committed in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. There are real, actual consequences to the sins. And yet, you and I can make no excuse Every mouth will be stopped. No more entitlement, no more excuses. We all stand completely exposed before the creator of the universe. Have any of you ever sinned against someone and actually approached them about it and stood before them while they looked into your eyes and you confessed what you did and you were actually wrong? And you stood there and waited for the response. I know I have. It's, it's one of the most challenging, most difficult, most uncomfortable, most frightening moments that you could ever feel. To look into someone's eyes completely uncertain of what was going to come next. That is the feeling of true accountability. That's the feeling of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ will never be good news to you until we come face to face with what this passage is teaching us that you and I are slaves to sin, that there's nothing, no amount of goodness you and I can do to achieve our salvation. And we desperately need to be rescued from the wrath of God. 
All of that brings me to uh, this final section of our passage of, of, of our reflections for this morning. So we've seen the devastating effects of sin. I want us to focus for those last few minutes on the forgiving grace of the Savior. So where are we? The charges have been read, the sentence has been determined, and the judge has taken his seat. You need help. I need help. You need intervention. You need a Savior. The good news, coming now and coming more fully next Sunday, Lord willing, is that this text does not have the final word. Romans 3.20 is not the last verse in the book of Romans. The ultimate goal of this passage is to call you to true repentance. If there's no way that you and I can ever achieve our salvation, the righteousness of God, if there's no way we can ever achieve that righteousness on our own, then we must be given that righteousness. It must come from outside of ourselves, what Martin Luther called alien righteousness. Don't forget, that's wonderful. Alien righteousness. It must come from outside of ourselves. And this text actually gives us a glorious, wonderful picture of where that gift is going to come from. Part of the law, part of what the law does in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, not only does it reveal to you your sin, which it does in this text, It also reveals to you the perfect righteousness of God. Everything that you and I are is not true of God. Everything that's true of him is not so true of us. So we can say this. We can go line by line just like we did about ourselves. God is perfectly righteous and good and just. His knowledge and his understanding are infinite. They know no end. He is infinitely worthy. Even now, while we gather in this room, the angels and the saints are in heaven rejoicing and worshiping him in eternal joy even as we speak. His mouth is full of blessing and life and joy and peace. God uses his words to call dead people back to life. Think about John chapter 11 when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He makes orphans into children. He makes slaves into free men and free women. His words are sweet and wonderful and full of forgiveness in life. His feet are swift not to shed blood like you and I. They are swift to run to his children, to embrace them, and to kiss them, to bring them back into his family. His path is decked with joy and life and peace and eternity. And he invites us to stand before him and look into his eyes, not as criminals, Look into the eyes of a judge, but as children, look into the eyes of a gracious, wonderful father. It's the very same people that this passage condemns that Jesus befriends, you and me. Friends, you can be a friend of Jesus today. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. All of these things that were spoken about you and me this morning were true of Jesus as he hung on the cross and took our place. As he stood and took the sacrifice in our place there, he, these things could be said true of him. Paul elsewhere in 2 Corinthians says that God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be in him the righteousness of God. So friends, we need to take an honest look at ourselves. We have to look a long look at ourselves. The the law is a mirror. It shows us who we really are. 
But as Robert Murray McShane, a 19th century Scottish pastor, often said, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Take 10 looks at Christ. We must be honest. We must be real. But that look, that look at ourselves should propel us to look to the face of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let me end with this. Right now, um, our two-year-old son, I mentioned him at the beginning, Abram is his name. We're teaching Abram how to sing Jesus Loves Me. And so when we, when we lay him down at night and we begin singing Jesus Loves Me, I'll, I'll pause before each line will end for him to finish it. So we'll say, Jesus loves me, and he'll say, this I know. And he's kind of getting to that. Every time we get to the part where it says, they are weak, but he is strong. Every time I get to that part, Abram skips the weak part. So I say, they are, and he says, but he is strong. Oh, let us be people who, let us be people who confess our weakness, but let us be people who sing and celebrate and delight in the strength of that Savior. Would we be Christians who shout that Jesus is a strong Savior? He befriends sinners. He knows your, your sin. He knows your shame, but he doesn't leave us there. You can't get right, friends, with God by trying harder. You can't do more. You can't be something you're not. The gospel is not about trying harder and being better. The gospel is about Jesus, his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his grace, his atonement, his presence, and his righteousness ultimately being credited to you, not because you believe, but through faith and through receiving the precious gift of his wonderful promises. We are indeed weak, but Jesus is strong. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are a strong Savior. You are a wonderful Savior. We worship you this morning. We thank you that Romans 3, 9 through 20 is not the only thing that's true about us. In fact, the opposite, can be, the opposite that can be said can be true is that in Christ we are more than sinful, Lord. We are now saints. We are those holy people set aside for service unto God and a life of grateful, wonderful obedience. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We ask now that you would convict us of our sin, that you would help us, Christian and unchristian alike, to turn to Christ in repentance. Help us by your grace and help us by your spirit as we continue in worship this morning. We ask in the strong name of our powerful Savior, Jesus. Amen.